The National Park System is home to some of the most beautiful land and wildlife you are ever going to see, and they belong to everyone. That's including you. I'm Brad. And I'm Matt. And on our show, Parklandia, we're bringing you on the road with us as we explore the wonders of the Everglades. The Petrified Forest. Yellowstone. And many more. If you want a refreshing, relatable look at the outdoors, listen to Parklandia on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. You don't have to be an expert camper to enjoy going outside. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Shame is so powerful that the minute it has a little bit of the creep factor, like you give it a little bit of room to breathe, it's it rolls over you again. And it's so funny because I live my life today not being ashamed of my conduct, not being ashamed of how I navigate this world, yet it lives in me. This is Jane Mintz. Jane is an interventionist, which means that she flies all over the world trying to intervene when someone, an alcoholic, an addict, needs a serious amount of help. When you want to bring the big guns in, the person who can handle all of it, the blood, the gore, the vomit, the denial, the life and death stakes of the addict at the end of the line, that's Jane. Because Jane's been there herself, right in the center of that shame, that addiction. It doesn't own me anymore, but it is something that I battle every single day. And I just, and I think that um, I feel better when I'm able to help somebody that is really sort of unconsciously deciding if they want to live or die. And there is that moment when I'm able to connect to somebody. For the moment, they choose to live, and that's the opening. So that's the power of what wounded people can do together. I'm Danny Shapiro. And this is Family Secrets, the secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. This is a story about adoption, addiction, recovery, identity, nature, nurture, and, well, just a little organized crime, but we'll get to that. And like a soft, thrumming heartbeat beneath all of it, shame. I've been thinking a lot about shame during this first season of Family Secrets because so many of these stories either originate in shame or cause shame or both. In Jane's case, her story begins with being adopted. She's the eldest of three adopted children brought into a wonderful, loving, privileged family. So everything's good, just as it ought to be. I grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio. My father was a surgeon. My mother, a stay-at-home mother. I had two adopted siblings. And we led, really, an idyllic life. Um, The rhythm of life was terrific. I had all the opportunity that was afforded me in terms of excellent education, great camps, you know, very feminist, you know, go-girl environment. Uh, private schools and that kind of thing, lots of travel. My family was incredibly social. We had lots of extended family and friends. And I was really supported and cherished and um, celebrated as a kid. But I was very lucky because my life could have been the polar opposite. And I knew that my whole life. So when you say your life could have been the polar opposite, 
it's because you had the knowledge that you were adopted. Right. And so the sense of luck of the draw or like being adopted into one particular family that was loving and privileged as opposed to another. Correct. It absolutely. And I didn't at that time know anything about my birth history, but I knew I was lucky. And I had a relationship with my father, who's passed on about five years now, um, that was extraordinary. Jane's dad was a huge personality. She describes him as the mayor of everything. He was Cleveland's favorite eye doctor, and Jane would tag along on his medical calls to the hospital, into the emergency room, even the operating room. He brought home cow eyes. I'm sorry, but ew. Ew. And taught her how to operate on them in the family's basement. Jane's mom was also a lovely human being, though Jane felt less connected to her. She was a beautiful entertainer, a great cook, a classic 1960s stay-at-home mom. My mother today is 86 years old and reads three newspapers a day and is glued to CNN and MSNBC. And the the thing that we have most in common today is politics, which is great. But we're very, very different people. And while I love and appreciate my mother, I never developed, you know, that rapport that I had with my dad. It was just a very different relationship and still, you know, deeply loving and and all that good stuff. But uh, we're just cut from completely different cloths. So in terms of being adopted, were you told that you were adopted at a particular age or, w- or was it part of the fabric of growing up for you always? How did your parents handle it? I think from the time I could comprehend, my mom uh, and dad would read me a little book called The Chosen One. And that was the message from the time I was a small child is that I was chosen and, you know, very special because of that. And so they normed out adoption. The mistake of norming it out was the misunderstanding that children are blank slates. So it was kind of an interesting dynamic where I always felt very, you know, loving and accepted. And I come from this amazingly um, cool family. It wasn't until much later in my life that I sort of stood in my own truth and said, I deserve to know. I really deserve it. The book Jane remembers is actually titled The Chosen Baby. Published in 1950, the cover features a whimsical drawing of a little boy climbing out of his crib, and the book is described as a universally popular children's story about adoption. The opening goes like this. The first baby was a little boy with blue eyes and curly blonde hair. He laughed and played with a rattle. The man and his wife watched the baby. Then they shook their heads and said, This is a beautiful child, but we know it is not our baby. And they were taken to see the next. And there, asleep in the crib, lay a lovely, rosy, fat baby boy. He opened his big brown eyes and smiled. The wife picked him up and sat him on her lap. The baby gurgled, and the man and his wife said, This is our chosen baby. We won't have to look any further. We will have everything ready for him by tomorrow and would like to take him home then. I'm sure the book was well-intentioned and its author well-meaning. And the parents who read it to their children were ahead of their time, those who were trying to tell the truth to their kids about their adoption. And yet, in Jane's words, the whole idea was to norm it out, to instill strongly the sense that being chosen was all that mattered. My adoption was a private adoption, and what what 
I think did go wrong over time is that while it appeared to be transparent, you know, in terms of me knowing I was adopted, my parents claimed they knew nothing about uh, my adopted family, which is not true. So it took me getting my grandmother really drunk and imploring her to show me my original birth certificate, which had been altered. My grandmother, my mother's mother, was um, just this little pocket person, but she was all fury. I mean, she was no joke at all. And um, I think that when I was born, my parents gave my grandfather and my grandmother my original birth certificate, and somehow I'd gotten wind of that at around 26, 27 years old. So I went over to my grandmother's house, and she used to smoke Lucky Strike cigarettes and drink scotch. So we started drinking scotch and smoking Lucky Strike cigarettes together, and I just said to her, I have to know. And her whole thing was, well, if your mother ever found out, I would never be able to recover from that because they were very, very bonded and had a you know, beautiful relationship. But she sort of, at that moment, there was this crack, and I was able to slip through, and she gave me my birth certificate, which then gave me the actual doctor and the town that I was born. After she finally finds her birth certificate, Jane hires a private detective. Jane is 26 years old. She's in retail computer sales. Her career is on fire. She's a hard-partying up-and-comer. Within three days, she was able to find everything out that I needed to know. And she called me and she said, um, you better sit down. And I, boy, did I sit down. And she told me, I found her. This is where she is. Um, she would like to talk to you. She wanted me to tell you, you know, she's been waiting for you your whole life. And I said, okay, have her call. And of course, at that time, I was drinking like a fish. And I grabbed a scotch bottle and I sat on the edge of my bed and the phone rang. And she said exactly those things to me. She said, I've been waiting for you all my life. And, um, and then we agreed to meet. We're going to pause for a moment. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. We're currently on break, working on season two. And as I review all the stories that have poured forth since this podcast came out, I can't begin to tell you how grateful I am to hear so many stories of bravery and resilience in the face of secrets. It's an important reminder that community is so powerful. To that end, we invite you to tell your secret, your story. You can call one 888 secret zero. That's zero as in the number. And record your story. We won't be able to run all of the stories on the podcast, but we do want to shine a light on as many as we can. The number, again, is one 888 secret zero. You can find out more at FamilySecretsPodcast.com. And you can listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Before we get to the moment when Jane first meets her birth mother, I want to know more about the whole inside Jane, inside so many of us whose origins have been kept from us. After all, she's had it pretty good. What sends her to the private detective and ultimately to her biological mother? I mean, what is that confusion? What is that sense of emptiness all about? Well, it's interesting when you live in such a beautiful bubble, 
and you have nothing but really good things happening to you all the time. And I was successful. I was had great friends. I had great family. My whole life, I felt like there was a black hole in my soul that was so deep and wide, and I felt like I didn't deserve to feel that way, and that I felt really ashamed of having these feelings and not being able to really identify what that was about. And, you know, I think shame is is what I learned to feel about myself my whole life, even though there was no evidence that I should be ashamed. But I felt ashamed for wanting to know more about myself and sort of being acculturated. I, I can't really describe it, but you never, you always feel on the outside of life. Always. And then there's no evidence for why you should feel that way, so that there's an incongruence. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how much I relate to that. Oh, cool. Okay. Cool. Yeah. No, the, the feeling of, I don't have a right to this pain. Right. I mean, you know, look at me, look where I live, look, That's at, right. look at this privilege and, you know, this environment in which really nothing has gone wrong. That's right. But the feeling of something being terribly wrong. Right. And that being an extremely confusing thing for a kid. It, it really is. And, you know, you and I were talking a little bit earlier that adoptive kids have a very high rate of addiction and process addictions, which mean being addicted to anything other than a substance. And my family were big cocktailers. And I can remember at nine years old, uh, clearing the cocktail glasses and then taking my first drink and that feeling of being different or separate or not a part of went away. So it's a classic when substance meets solution and that was the story of my life. So rather than try to seek an inward journey until I learned to do that, everything was external. Everything was an external fix and that's even more dysregulating. Uh, because there's no, you know, you're, it's not an authentic journey at that point. Right. And yet what's going through my head is what possible tools would you have had to know that an inward journey was possible? Exactly. Ex and it wasn't until I landed in treatment <laughs> that that I started to connect with Native American spirituality and ritual and all this kind of stuff and really realized that there was a huge spiritual part of myself that I never knew existed. I didn't know existed for anybody else. Would you have, though, like in middle school, in high school, would you have been able to identify this if somebody had asked you, are you good with what you know about yourself or is there, does it feel like there's something more that, that you're seeking that you want? Would you have been able to articulate that? I would have. You would have. I would have. But I was never asked. And I didn't look to somebody to, you know, ask me that. Well, that goes back to the narrative of, I was chosen. Right. I've been so blessed. Right. I'm so lucky. Yeah. I should just shut up and... Shut up and enjoy it, right? But you can't. If something is so... It's it's cellular. And it's also... I'm a big Jungian, so the collective unconscious is, you know, is always, you know, so intriguing to me. And there's, there's a real disconnect. And when you're in disharmony with the universe, you know, starting with yourself, everything... We talked about running around your backhand. That's what happens, is that you just end up course-correcting all the time. When Jane talks about running around her backhand, this is a phrase that originates in her youth as a tournament tennis player, and one I love so much I'm going to start using it myself. 
I was also a tournament tennis player, though probably not as good as Jane. And I remember that coaches love to say this, don't run around your backhand, meaning don't compensate or overcompensate. Don't be afraid of your weaknesses. Running around whatever your truth is, whatever you know deep down is the right thing to do. So you're only playing with half your game because you're so worried about failing or missing your shot. Or, in Jane's case, if she was enough of a winner, if she nailed every shot, she would continue to be the lucky, chosen baby. In my own mind, now that I can deconstruct some of this stuff, it was, they can't possibly give me back if I'm this good. So now Jane is 26 years old, and she's sitting on the edge of her bed with her bottle of scotch and hearing the sound of her birth mother's voice for the first time in her life. When I heard her voice, it's like my, my cells started knitting back together. It was terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. So I decided, you know, on that phone call with my birth mom, her name is Linda, to meet her. And I flew to Dallas the next week. And I was, my uniform at the time, probably still is today, it was, you know, cowboy boots, jeans, and a white shirt. And I walked off the plane, and at that time people could meet you at the gate. Remember that, like back in the Stone Ages? Uh, and there was my mother in a white shirt, jeans, and cowboy boots. And we're doppelgangers. We're dead lookalikes. When you see somebody that you're a dead ringer for, I mean, my mannerisms, the cadence of my voice, the way I wore my hair, my blue eyes, my whole, it was the most soul-shattering moment. And I think sometimes you have to fall apart to put yourself back together. And that was, that brought the house down for me. And then I started to learn to live. And it was because I felt finally that, that I did belong somewhere. Jane's mother, Linda, her life is complex. Jane describes her as an extraordinary, very wounded person with a loose grip on reality. Linda also has another child, one she has raised, Jane's half-brother, who has mixed feelings about the discovery that he has a sibling he had never known about. On her end, she had kept me a secret from my half-brother and the family, so she had to come clean. So we went over and we met my my half-brother, who was not really buying into this whole thing. He'd been the golden child in his family, but they had lived a very challenging life, I mean, just needless to say. And so I met him, I met his two little kids and his wife at the time, and the three of us just decided to go out and do some skeet shooting. And that was really great. Um, and that's the other thing, is from the time I was a small child, I could ride and shoot like nobody's beeswax. Skeet shooting as a bonding activity doesn't seem to quite go together with Jane's Shaker Heights progressive Jewish upbringing. Yes, a, a liberal Jewish progressive Democrat, you know, I mean, we we didn't shoot guns, we didn't do all that kind of stuff, but I went to these this fabulous summer camp where we did all that, and that was just such a part of my DNA because that's my whole family. We're all, you know, outdoorsy, outlaws, addicts, you know, really colorful group of people. So we just blew stuff up, and it was sort of this cathartic, cool bonding. DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, 
There's a mouthful for you. Here's a definition. The fundamental and distinctive characteristics or qualities of someone or something, especially when regarded as unchangeable. What is it to recognize the characteristics or qualities of yourself in someone else for the very first time? I remember when I first laid eyes on my biological father. The first time I saw him was on a YouTube video. He was giving a lecture, and what I felt watching him was a shocking sense of familiarity. His gestures, his facial expressions, his very nature was like an overlay of my own. The one thing about my mother, uh, Linda, was that she was dynamic. I mean, there was just something, she would just weave a spell around you. Her charisma was extraordinary. And as she started to tell me a little bit about her life, she started to answer a lot of questions about how I operated because I'm sort of uh, an outlaw at heart, but I've been refined and I've been educated and I have a very distinct moral compass and sort of code of conduct. But my mother, who polished herself up, ended up leaving home at 15 or 16 years old, found her way into the St. Louis mob and became a very high-ranking uh, capo. Just hold on a second here. In all the fantasies that adopted children have about who their birth mother might be, you know, famous actress, foreign royalty, I wonder if high-ranking capo in the St. Louis mob has ever made the list. Jane's mother was a mobster. She drove getaway cars. She used her beauty to lure men into rooms where bad, bad things happened. She fell in love with Kurt Flood, a Hall of Fame baseball player, and even tried to run away with him. Jane describes Linda as a black widow type, dark and dangerous in a glamorous package. So many of the stories that she told me about that part of her life, which were really the glory days of her life, started to help me make sense of the mobster in me. And it was just an unbelievable, like, oh my God, now I get it. I get why I think this way. I get that. So, so it was just a kind of a, a chicken and egg thing. You know, when you can't figure out why you're, you operate this, like as a little Jewish girl from Shaker Heights, there would be no reason for me to be as street smart as I am. There would be no reason for me to be able to read a room as quickly as I can. Um, no frame of reference for any of this stuff, and very different than my other siblings and even my parents. The nature is so strong. You know, the nurture is important, but what I learned was over my lifetime was to appreciate so much the cellular knowledge that is transferred from one generation to another. Which, it could be argued, is why it's so important. Why the child is not a blank slate. Oh my gosh. It's so true. And without somebody being able to claim their history and to understand their history, most people feel fraudulent and out of congruence. It's a terrible way to live. And that school of thinking, school of thought, has destroyed so many people. And today, you know, after my own journey of my own addiction, my job every single day is to be rigorously honest with myself and other people. And 
telling the truth uh, is a hard thing to do. And reconciling the truth is a hard thing to do. So Jane meets her birth mom and the rest of her birth family and learns so much about herself. That black hole, that yawning empty space inside her, is all filled up. She no longer feels the need to drink. Cue the violins. In the Hollywood version of Jane's life, that's what would happen, right? The moment she meets her mother, her biological mother, she would have everything she needs. Her questions all would be answered. And her addiction? Well, that would just go away. But life is not a Hollywood movie. Jane is in her mid-twenties when she meets Linda, and it takes her until the age of 40 to get sober. Because I was carrying a secret, and that destroyed me, ultimately destroyed me. And I ended up working my whole life around protecting that secret of having met her, establishing a relationship with her, you know, being forced to live a double life, because I was immediately welcomed in to my birth family all the while remaining staunchly a part of my adoptive family. And I should have felt like I was complete, but I felt like I had betrayed, that I was had been treacherous and deceitful, that if my family ever really found out uh, that I had done this, that I would be disowned, that the relationships would be forever fractured. And that's actually pretty much what happened. I had to, to end up telling my father my beloved father, because my brother was coming to town. My half-brother was coming to town to visit me. And I just, it's such a close-knit community that we look so much alike, my birth mother looks at, that I knew that the minute he came to town, it was, the cat was out of the bag. So I ended up telling my dad about this. Of course, he was shattered, and he went and told my mother about this. And I don't know that she's ever recovered. And that was the last anybody ever spoke of it. So that's another wound, Right. But it strikes me that you didn't have to have your half-brother come to town. Right. So you must have on some level oh, yeah. needed to bring this to a boil. No, no question about it. And, you know, some of that's really a blur. And I think instinct kicks in. I wanted my children to meet him. Um, I wanted my then-husband to meet him. And I needed some support. I needed people to share this burden with me, which... It's a weird word to use, but that's what it was. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. I get a lot of emails about cold cases all the time. And usually when I look at a story, I can tell in the first five minutes what probably happened. But this one, which is really strange. I'm Katherine Townsend, host of the true crime podcast, Hell and Gone. And then I was asking people, well, what's wrong? What's wrong? And when we got in the sheriff's office, you know, he said, Jenny was dead. No explanation. Janie Ward was 16 years old when she died under mysterious circumstances. She was at a party at a cabin in the woods in the small town of Marshall, Arkansas. I would not buy the story that she fell off this little porch. My daughter was beaten to death. I'm heading back to Arkansas on a new case to find out what happened to Janie Ward on September 9th, 1989. Listen to Hell and Gone, that's H-E-L-L and Gone, on Apple Podcasts or on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. The 
this idea of being burdened feels like an important one. When there are family secrets, who carries that burden and why? Does the burden shift from one family member to another? Does the burden exist if the secret manages to stay secret? What are all the implications of the hidden, the unsaid, the unknown? Can you talk more about shame? Because Mm -hmm. it seems to me there are a few through lines Um, both in my story and all the stories of the people that I've been in conversations with for this podcast. And one of those through lines is shame. Another is a close cousin to shame, which is this feeling of not deserving. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that when someone has been raised in the atmosphere of the unsaid Mm -hmm. in some way, even if you know, child. A child doesn't know necessarily mm-hmm. uh, what the what that thing is. Mm-hmm. It's just this feeling of not having all the information and somehow not having a right to it, or not having a right to uh, one's own reality. Right. Oh, you just like I feel like I'm you know a little unglued because you've just hit me so hard with, you know, those are the through lines of my life are feeling worthy. And my sense of worth was in my accomplishments. And people in my life were very happy to wear my accomplishments on their sleeve. So then I was validated socially and all for all of that. But that was such an external thing. And then shame is another thing that I still, you know, at 58 years old, battle every day of my life. And I, I really do look in the mirror and say, what do you have to be ashamed of? Like, you're a cool person. You've raised great kids. You have great business. You help people. You do it. But deep in my soul, I have never been able to uh, heal that. You know, even with as much work as I've done, you know, in my own growth, in my own sort of therapeutic growth, I can't get it right. It's like such a broken piece of me. And I just don't quite know how to do it, but I keep trying. Jane has some years of heading down a parallel track to Linda's. Linda is a pill addict. Jane is an active alcoholic. This is something they have in common, something also likely rooted in their shared biology. But then, Jane finally gets sober. And Linda? Linda does not. I just had a sort of a flash of insight here, but um, I lived just culturally differently, but I lived the same story as my mother of feeling on the outside, you know, finding ways to belong, um, dealing with the trauma of trying to fit in and figure out where you exist. And ultimately, my mother destroyed herself. I didn't. And I was able to catch myself before I died prematurely. But that same desire to want to destroy oneself, I shared with my mother. Now I was clean and sober, and she was starting to fall further, further into depression, um, compensatory behaviors. She was a terrible cigarette smoker, and um, she was an alcoholic, but she was, you know, prescription painkiller queen. And I just saw mental illness started roll over her. And there was no stopping it. And then, you know, as somebody new in recovery, you want to share that and you want to talk about it. Well, that's the last thing that somebody wants to talk about when they're in active addiction. 
Linda dies in 2007, destitute and alone, in government housing in rural Missouri, near the Ozark Mountains, in a tiny house filled with the stench of cigarettes, every surface covered with tar. Jane had already completed her graduate degree, and by that time was well on her way to doing her work as an interventionist. Ultimately, she ended up perishing, and the the talk about the shame of not being able to save her, you know, and then really watch her die and then discover her in the condition, her living condition, which I knew nothing about, um, thank God, because I would have bankrupted myself to provide some kind of lifestyle for her. I I mean, what a mess, but um, what it did for me is it woke me up and I'm a light keeper today. And unless you've lived in the dark, you don't know what light is. You think you do, but you don't. You know, 15 years down the road now, um, I feel like I've lived several lifetimes in this lifetime, but this is where I belong. Because for some reason, I have that ability to reach in uh, to the dark and pull people out or be a part of pulling people out. I don't want to, you know, sound like a a grandized... uh, But it's just kind of an amazing thing. Well, you aren't afraid of it. No. And you are able to recognize it. And I'm strong, you know? I've survived. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? The way that it it can all coexist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's still so confusing. While I have lots of pieces and parts, it's not completely integrated. And I think that that's my soul journey this time around, is to you know, continue to seek the truth and to be of service to others. And that's part of my healing and my journey and my self-actualization. But it's all very confusing. Jane uses a lot of imagery in her conversation, and this makes sense to me. Images are often easier to hold on to than language, than words. She described herself earlier as a huge Jungian, Carl Jung, the psychoanalytic poet of the unconscious. When Jane studied for her master's degree, she was drawn to the work of Clarissa Pinkola Estes, one of the great Jungian analysts of our time. She told this story of this zygote baby, and effectively, uh, and I'll probably butcher this, but you'll get it, is that the stork is flying across the sky with a big basket on its back, and all these little babies are in the basket ready to be delivered to their intended families. But there are always these, the little ones that like overpercolate. And they're so excited that they end up falling out of the basket into the wrong family. And they spend their whole lives trying to reconcile their difference, their, their sort of intuitive knowing difference from where they landed to who they are as human beings. That's the story of my life. And while I don't feel that my family was wrong, I felt that I did unnaturally land in my family. I am that zygote baby. And um, I think that many adoptive kids feel that way. Uh, But we end up actually being the most dynamic, resilient, powerful people because of everything that we've had to endure to get to our truth. I'd like to thank my guest, Jane Mintz, for sharing her family secret. 
You can find out more about Jane and her work at janemints.com. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer. Andrew Howard and Tristan McNeil are the audio engineers. And Julie Douglas is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, you can get in touch with us at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer and Facebook at Family Secrets Pod and Twitter at Fam Secrets Pod. That's Fam Secrets Pod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit dannyshapiro.com. In the Montgomery County, Maryland courthouse, there are thousands of pages of documents detailing the horrific murders of three innocent people. As soon as I heard the details, I knew my dad was involved right away. Instantly, I said, it's Lawrence. But at the time of the murders, Lawrence Horn was clear across the country. I'm Jasmine Morris. From iHeartRadio and Hit Home Media, this is Hitman. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.